Our text this evening is uh, John chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 43. So Jesus has just spent two days with the Samaritans, witnessing to them, and the result has been faith in the Lord Jesus by many. And then in verse 43, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they came, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Have you ever had someone glad to see you and you discovered it was not because they enjoy your company as a friend, but because of what they can get from you? This is a common scenario for those who are who are famous. People want to spend time with them, not out of genuine friendship, but rather in order to be seen with them. Fans want an autograph or picture so their friends will be jealous, which means that if you are that famous person, you have to get used to people acting like they like you for who you are as a person, um, uh, when in reality they only, uh, they're, they're only really using you as a tool for their own glory. And this is sadly a scenario more common than one would hope in our relationships with others. There is a tendency to want friends for what they can give us, rather than viewing people, uh, friends as, as people to serve because we like them and want to be a blessing to them. And so we ask our friends how they are doing, even if they don't ask the same thing in return. We help them even if they don't help us. We encourage them even if it is not reciprocal. Well, Jesus had people interested in him for a number of different reasons. Some were genuinely interested in his spiritual provisions as the Messiah. They were looking to him in faith as the Son of God. Others were curious about who he was and what he might do next based on reports of miraculous signs that he had performed. Many acted as though they appreciated Jesus, but almost always the interest was in what he might do for them to make their lives better. The verses we are considering this evening, we are presented with what the Apostle John calls the second sign that Jesus did in Galilee. Uh, We are reminded that the first sign was the changing of water into wine, and that sign recorded back in chapter 2 took place at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. 
After the wedding, after spending two days in Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And we are told at the end of chapter 2, in a kind of summary way, what happened during Jesus' time in Jerusalem. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It was there in Jerusalem that Jesus met with Nicodemus. There was the event where he cleansed the temple. It was in the Judean countryside outside of Jerusalem that Jesus' disciples were baptizing and drew the attention of John the Baptist's disciples. And that was the context for John the Baptist making that amazing testimony in which he exalts Jesus as the Son of God who gives eternal life to all who believe in him and also leaves us with that uh, famous remark that Jesus must increase while he must decrease. Chapter 4 begins by telling us that, quote, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And that's what prompts Jesus to leave Judea and depart again for Galilee. It was on the way to Galilee through Samaria that he took time to talk with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And after spiritual sowing and reaping among the Samaritans there that took place over several days, Jesus again sets out for Galilee. And then once again in Galilee, the event before us this evening, he heals an official's son. And it's that healing that becomes the second sign that he did in Galilee. But before we get to that sign, we need to wrestle with what Jesus means when he gives as the reason for going back to Galilee that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's what we read in verse 44. Some have thought that Jesus must be talking there about Jerusalem as his hometown. And the explanation given is that Jesus was sensing the opposition of the Pharisees there in Jerusalem And it is that refusal on their part to give Jesus honor as a prophet that then compels him to move on to the region of Galilee to the north. But there are a number of problems with that view that force us to accept a different, and I would admit not immediately obvious, alternative interpretation. First of all, everywhere else in the Gospels that we read um, about Jesus using this proverb of a prophet not having honor in his own hometown, the reference is to Nazareth in Galilee. At the very least, the word for hometown could mean more broadly in the, in the Greek one's fatherland, and in that case, it would not make sense to contrast Judea over against Galilee, as both of these regions are part of the nation of Israel. So it's possible that Jesus is referring to the land of Israel, which includes Galilee and Judea, over against the land of the Samaritans. In other words, we expect Jesus to be referring to not being accepted in Nazareth and Galilee by extension, as Nazareth was a region of Galilee, or he is contrasting how he was not accepted in Judea, including Jerusalem and Galilee, over against his reception in the land of Samaria. The point is that Jesus was not referring to Jerusalem as the place where he was not honored over against supposedly being honored in Galilee. And second, we are 
led to the understanding that Jesus was not contrasting Jerusalem and Galilee because there was not an active resistance or opposition arising against Jesus in Jerusalem or Galilee at this early juncture in Jesus' ministry. Though we certainly understand Jesus' sensitivity to the people and factors that were leading to what would become an antagonistic relationship. Certainly the Gospels teach us that Jesus was very aware of the timetable according to God's plan when he was to be crucified, and he understood that things were not to progress too soon. And it seems that here in chapter 4, it's early enough in Jesus' ministry to say that Jesus wasn't concerned about being crucified too early as much as not wanting to create division between himself and John the Baptist. And to that end, comparisons being made by the Pharisees between him and, and, and John the Baptist with this going on, the easiest solution was to leave the area. And third, we have already encountered what was a positive response to Jesus in Jerusalem that was not really a positive response. Um, I've spent some time explaining the nature of people believing in Jesus' name because of the signs they saw, but Jesus not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. What was there was apparently not a full-orbed faith of trust in him for eternal life. And it's this kind of reception that Jesus was receiving in Jerusalem that we believe Jesus was also expecting in Galilee. And in support of this detail, of this perspective is the detail that John gives that it was the very Galileans who had been in Jerusalem at the feast who are now welcoming him in Galilee. So if Jesus was leaving Jerusalem because of the kind of reception he had there, he should be expecting to receive the very same one in Galilee, for in large part it was the same group of people. So then how are we to understand this passage when the reason given for Jesus departing for Galilee is because he was not being given honor in his hometown, and then the passage tells us that the Galileans welcomed him. Well, the key, the key to figuring this out is actually that word welcomed. Verse 45 says the Galileans welcomed him. And why did they welcome him? Because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. In other words, they had seen the signs that he did there, and this prompted them to welcome him. So in sum, Jesus left for Galilee, for a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Rather than viewing John's report of the Galileans welcoming Jesus as being a contradiction to what Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about it being the Galileans and Nazareth who did not honor him as a prophet, what clears up the matter is to consider the difference between the Galileans honoring and welcoming Jesus. While these words might be assumed to be the same thing, they are not the same thing. When verse 45 says the Galileans welcomed Jesus, the Greek word means to receive. And I would point out that this is not the same kind of receiving that the Apostle John talks about back in chapter 1, verse 11, where it says that those who received him, that is the Lord Jesus, became children of God. That kind of receiving is a receiving in faith. But here in chapter 4, this is a, a different Greek word, and the word here in verse 45 means simply to receive a visitor. It means a willingness to have contact and friendly interaction with someone. And that is, you see, not the same thing as honoring Jesus as a prophet. 
To honor Jesus as a prophet would be to acknowledge Jesus as being sent from God, as having a message from God that is to be received with divine authority, which would imply obeying him. It means receiving from him instruction, truth, and responding to it with faith. This is far different than welcoming Jesus simply because he has shown himself able to do amazing signs. So this kind of welcome from the Galileans, which was not an honoring, was what we find coming from the official who seeks out Jesus for healing for his son. In fact, this interaction, this event with the official serves to confirm the interpretation that we are to understand that the very same Galilee that welcomed Jesus was not honoring him. This official is an example of the problem. For here is a man whose faith is simply in Jesus as being from God and able to do amazing things, though the text does indicate that this man's nominal faith did grow into saving faith. So this is the context for Jesus' second sign, and we want to consider in greater depth this second sign and its spiritual lessons. And in this, I'm taking the lead of J.C. Ryle. He presents four lessons from these verses And what we basically have is an interaction between Jesus and an official whose son is on the verge of death from an illness. And this Galilean hears that Jesus has returned to Galilee, and he goes to him and requests that Jesus Jesus go back with him to his home and heal his son. We see that Jesus rebukes him for requiring signs and wonders to believe. With that, the man begs that Jesus come down before his child dies, And Jesus responds by telling him that his son will live. The man believes and returns to his home. And as he nears his home, his servants tell him that his son is doing better. He asks them when he got better, and he learns from his servants the time of his son's recovery and how that time corresponded to when Jesus pronounced that his son would live. And the story ends with this man and his household believing. So as we think of these four lessons that come out of this text, first of all, one lesson that comes out of this story is that we must not imagine that the rich have no worries. Now before we flesh out this particular lesson, some clarifications are in order about the identity of this official. This official is not the same official that is mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a lot of unnecessary confusion that arises when we try to harmonize what John here records with the event in the Gospels when we are told about a centurion in Capernaum asking for the healing of his servant. That man was clearly a Gentile, and his faith served as an occasion for rebuking Israel's faith. For Remember that centurion had a strong enough faith to believe from the very beginning of his interactions with Jesus that Jesus did not have to be physically present to heal his servant, but could heal him by just saying the word. The man in our text is an official, and we surmise an official under Herod, and it is his son, not his servant, who is ill. There's nothing in our text to suggest that this man is a Gentile. In fact, in line with the context, it almost seems certain that this man was a Galilean Jew. The point is to contrast the response of the Jews to Jesus with the response of the Gentile Samaritans that has just taken place. 
And so this official is, we believe, a Galilean who has faith in Jesus as a miracle worker and is hoping to take advantage of his power on behalf of his son. So to get back then to that first lesson, the point is that even this official, who we can presume had earthly power and wealth, finds himself in need of what Jesus can do for him. Riches do not protect from trouble. They cannot solve the problems that come into our lives. People tend to think that riches are the key to having no worries, but rich people get sick just like everybody else. And rich people have anxieties, in fact, some that are unique to them as rich people. Um, Ryle says in his commentary, The higher the tree, the more it is shaken by storms. The broader its branches, the greater is the target which it exposes to the storm. Even the rich need Jesus. And though the rich need Jesus for their spiritual bankruptcy, their earthly riches tend to be a hindrance to seeking Jesus for their spiritual needs, which is why Jesus will later give the warning that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, although he will add the caveat that all things are possible with God. So this man, by having a problem he cannot solve with earthly riches, namely sparing his son from this deadly illness, is being shown clearly that riches are not the key to life. Jesus, the one who can heal the sick, is able to do so because he is God. And as the healer of the sick is giving a sign of his ability to push back the curse of sin. The greater salvation uh, that we really need, rich and poor alike, is salvation from the curse of sin. We need a savior from sin, and not simply salvation from the symptoms of sin. To some degree, rich uh, riches can make life easier, and in that way they tempt us to think that they are able to overcome the curse of sin, but in the end, riches cannot hold back death. Only Jesus can defeat death. And the only way to defeat death is for him to suffer the wages of our sin by dying in our place, which is what he will eventually do through his death on the cross. So there's first of all a lesson here regarding the inability of riches to protect us from death. And second, there is a reminder here that sickness and death come to the young as well as to the old. The natural order of things and what we tend to always expect is that parents will face their own sickness and death before their children. But this official faces the reverse order in which his son is at the point of death and he faces the prospect of burying his son. Now, Ryle, in his commentary, writes about how this is a truth that we are slow to learn. We assume young people never die when young. The very first grave that was ever dug was for a young man, Abel. Aaron lost two sons in one stroke. David buried three children. Job lost ten children in one day. And these things were carefully recorded for our learning. We need to reckon with the brevity of life. We need to be ready to meet God no matter what our age is. And we are born in sin. Our children are not exempt from death. The key to life beyond this life is to be joined to Jesus with a true faith. And then third, we learn something here of the benefit of trouble to our souls. It was illness that led this official 
to seek out Jesus. And then the end, we read those wonderful words, verse 53, and he himself believed and all his household. We understand these words to be telling us of an advance in this man's faith from simply a faith in Jesus being able to do miraculous things to believing in him. When at that point, there was nothing more earthly in view to receive. Now this man is believing in Jesus unto eternal life. Ryle rightly points out, affliction is one of God's medicines. Biety often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. Biety often draws souls away from sin and the world who would otherwise have perished forever. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are all what we all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Thousands at the last day will testify with David and the noblemen before us, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 71. And Ryle goes on to warn against murmuring in the time of trouble, and the key is to recognize that there is a meaning, there is a purpose, even a message in every sorrow that falls upon us by God's design. We need to recognize how sorrows and troubles, they, they open up the Bible to us, and they serve the purpose of God developing spiritual fruit in our lives. And lastly, we learn from this event that Christ's word is as good as his presence. Now, sometimes he, he heals by means of touch, but in this instance, he heals the official son from a distance, by merely speaking, saying, go, your son will live. That man had begged Jesus to come down to Capernaum before his son died, assuming that Jesus would need to be there to bring about the healing. But Jesus, as the word who created all things, had divine power to speak and to effect healing. And this ought to be a great source of comfort to you. It means that Every word that Jesus has, has, has spoken by, by way of promise to us will be accomplished. Jesus does not ever speak in vain. He speaks as the divine word whose words accomplish God's will. And so when Jesus promises to forgive and to save those who trust in him, you can be sure it will happen. And so let us then consider by way of summary this sign, this second sign given in Galilee. For remember, a sign is a miracle with a message. And so what is the message? Well, this sign is, uh, is the message that Jesus is God. Only God can heal the sick from a distance by merely speaking. The message of Jesus' identity was crystal clear. He was not a mere man, but the word become flesh. And furthermore, the message from Healing the official son is the nature of the salvation Jesus has come to bring. He has come to deliver sinners from the curse of sin. Illness and death are the wages of sin. Illness and death are due to the curse of God against sin. They're due to man's rebellion against God. And to miraculously relieve this man and his son from this crisis of impending death was to point to Jesus' mercy and to indicate that he had come to deliver us in very practical ways from that which we cannot deliver ourselves. This man was desperate, and he knew that there was no hope for his son apart from Jesus' intervention. And he was correct about that. 
sin and its consequences are problems that ultimately we cannot solve. Yes, it is true we can temporarily and in limited ways do things to grant relief from the curse of sin. There's healing, there's health that can come through surgery and medicines and good nutrition. Uh, as we think about the miseries of poverty through hard work and the merciful help of others, it's possible to escape these miseries. There are often solutions to the problems that we face, but they are limited and they are temporary. We can't eradicate disease so as to live forever. Think about even this child who was healed by Jesus later died of something and his physical healing then was temporary. We can solve many problems, but not all of them, and not forever. This is a fallen world in which we live, and we are not able to escape the curse and wrath of God except through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus for physical healing, yes, that's commendable, but faith in Jesus for spiritual healing and eternal life is what you and I really need. In our third and final point for this evening, I want to address your attention to the significance of this event as a message for the Jews. The Jews at the Passover feast saw the signs that Jesus was doing. The Galileans who had visited Jerusalem had witnessed these signs and they returned back to Galilee. And it's in the context of the Galileans welcoming Jesus that we read of this Galilean official who was concerned about his son. What we've already learned at the end of chapter 2 is that many of these Jews who believed in his name had a deficient faith because it was only based on the signs that Jesus did. In fact, we see in the initial report regarding this Galilean official an additional example of someone with incomplete and inadequate faith. First of all, notice the official believed that for Jesus to heal his son, he would have to travel from Cana to Capernaum and would have to be there with his son. He thought that Jesus was limited by distance. And second, he wrongly believed that Jesus could not do anything if his son actually died. He was desperate that Jesus get there and heal him before it was too late. And so his expectation of what Jesus could do was limited. He figured that Jesus was incapable of raising his son from death. And third, Jesus rebukes the man's faith in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This man was apparently not willing to believe Jesus' testimony apart from signs and wonders. This is the only time in John's gospel that he uses this word wonders. That's a, it's a word that refers to something startling. Both of these words, signs and wonders, they refer to miracles. That is, things that are extraordinary and that point to supernatural power at work. So what's the difference? Well, signs are miracles that are given to make a spiritual point, to give a spiritual lesson, so to speak. Well, wonders are miracles from their perspective, uh, from the perspective of their effect upon us. They're, they're startling, they're sensational, they're exciting. They're ultimately something that requires supernatural power. And Jesus' point is that people were interested in him for miraculous, powerful help that he could give them in their earthly lives. The implication is that he is not being sought for who he is. The focus is on the wonders that he can do. And I proclaim to you that it's spiritually dangerous to have an interest in Jesus that only goes as far 
as self-centered desires for help with earthly problems. If your interest in Jesus is earthly prosperity, if your interest in Jesus is only about health and healing, but there is no trust in his person, no love for him as your savior from sin, your interest in him falls short of saving faith. Yes, you could, should, and, and, and can seek him for any and all help, but do so because you know he is God. And you understand that the help that you really need that he, is the salvation that he offers full and free from the curse of sin. In all of your seeking of Jesus' help, you must know that it is not something you deserve, but a gift of grace. And so if you go to him and find that he does respond, as promised, with forgiveness and the hope of eternal life, then the appropriate response is to love him, to want to obey him. And so true faith in Jesus doesn't look to him for earthly blessings and then walk away, but seeks him for eternal life. And if you have true faith, you will follow him as a disciple. In the end here, we have a theme that John will bring up again. And again, which is to rebuke the people of Israel for their lack of faith. In Samaria, Jesus did not have to do signs and wonders to the degree that he did in Israel in order to create interest in him. We, we need to keep Jesus' miracles in perspective. Miracles are never, in and of themselves, able to create faith. But they serve a purpose. They serve an apologetic function of confirming who Jesus is and they serve as a context for faith and to confirm existing faith and we see that Jesus did confirm to the Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah by supernaturally revealing a knowledge of her home life and specifically that she was living in an unmarried state with a man and so Jesus did perform a miracle for this woman but what we also see is that she immediately responds appropriately she acknowledges him to be a prophet and she engages him in a spiritual conversation. And when he pronounces himself to be the Messiah, she believes. Contrast Jesus' use of one miracle with her, with the many miracles that Jesus did among the people of Israel. We are told that many believed in his name when they saw the signs, plural, that he was doing. Jesus rebukes the official in a way that took in not just him, but the Jews, because his rebuke uses the plural. When he says to the man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you there is plural. He's making the statement broader than just this man. He's saying, your people, you people have a big problem. That unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, there would have been no interest in Jesus apart from the signs. And what the interaction with the official is meant to do is to call the Jews to see Jesus for who he is. The focus should not stop with the signs that he does. Do you see who he is? Do you see that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Do you see that he is God come in the flesh? Do you see that he is to be sought as teacher, prophet, Lord, master, savior? Are you looking to him for eternal life? Do you belong to those who have received him or to those who have not received him? Do you belong to those who have believed in his name and through him are children of God? And so John is appealing 
to Jesus' own people, receive him, for he is God's son, come to deliver us from sin. And so we come back to that statement that Jesus went to Galilee. He went to Galilee because of the lack of honor from his own people. Because you see, his goal was to make sure that his own people had the chance to witness the truth of who he is and respond appropriately. His method of operation was to minister to those who needed him, even if only for the purpose of leaving them without excuse on Judgment Day. He went there to Galilee because they were people who did not honor him, who were only looking for signs and wonders. May we be people who believe in Jesus for who he is, as the eternal Son of God. May we believe, when given the opportunity, including the opportunity that has been given this evening as we have had this passage opened to us. This is the time to receive Jesus for who he is and not simply for what he can give. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for these signs that point to who he is. And Father, we thank you for spiritual eyes to see who he is, that he is not just a mere man, a great prophet, a person with special abilities, but Father, he is your eternal son. Father, he is the one that you have sent to save us from the curse of sin, and may we be looking to him, not simply to relieve us of the symptoms of sin, but from sin itself, from the curse of sin because it separates us from you. And Father, we this evening look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin, uh, we renew our faith and trust in him. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us for at times looking to Jesus simply for physical blessings. And certainly, Father, we thank you for the times when you grant us the things that we need for our earthly lives. But Lord, cause us to see that our Savior and the things that he has come to bring us are much greater than physical wealth, physical healing, anything of this earth. Father, may we be seeking Christ. For who, you, for who he is, as our Savior from sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.